What does it take to win? Hosted by track record founders David Carey and Scott Gardner. Ready again. Transforming your track record with leadership coaching. Inspired by elite performance from sports and business. On your ups. Side track from leading performers in sports and business to find out what does it take to win. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. What does it take to win each time we are speaking to elite performers in sport business and this time it's the military as well. Uh, so Scott, tell us who we've got. David, David, today we've got an absolute cracker. So bear with me as I try to keep these introductions as short as possible. It's not going to be easy. We have leadership experiences and medals from all domains galore today. So any hints, given the military in the first, in a bit there in the introduction. Anyway, David, today we've got Greg Baker, um, long-term head coach of a multi-medal winning British Paralympic table tennis program. He is a graduate of the UK Sport Elite Coach Program, and he is a man who cares for coaching and coaches so mm. much that he's co-founded the UK Sport um, or the UK Performance Coaches Association uh, to provide a voice for coaches and nationwide within the elite sporting system. Cool. Um, David Wiffwaff is definitely coming home today for us <laughs> in here. <laughs> we uh, so on my left though today, David. We have uh, Andy Salmon, uh, CMG OBE, former Commandant General of the Royal Marines, um, a man who's seen peace and conflict in all of its incarnations. Uh, he is uh, now creating immersive experiences that inspire journeys to a better life. I'll give him a plug here for his journey through conflict, which I've seen two versions of, which are some of the most moving, um, heartwarming and informative pieces of uh, immersive art. God, I don't even know how to describe That's it. Good. It, That's it, good. Are you happy, are you <laughs> happy with that? Keep selling. Uh, we'll um, you on another podcast. I also too. say as a singing, a singing voice to die for, so go out, buy your CDs when these things come out. CDs? We don't even do CDs anymore. An album. Anyway, an, an album. Might an album. actually do a vinyl. Oh. Because vinyl is coming in, you know, more in it's vogue coming these back. days because people it like is, to have yeah. the, it is. The, the art that they can touch and oh, hold. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, welcome to you both. Um I don't know where you're going to start with this one, David, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I, I, I've told quite a few people that um, you guys are coming on and, and every time I've told them, they've been like, wow. And then they kind of think, how is that going to work? <laughs> so let's find out. We'll see. <laughs> let's find out. <laughs> I'm useless at table tennis. <laughs> no, so, uh, no, I've never been in war, so don't worry. <laughs> so um, I, I'm, the first question I'm going to ask, Greg, uh, what do you want to be famous for? Well, a nice one to start with. I think ultimately is helping um, helping people achieve things that they ne necessarily didn't think they could achieve. Mm. Um, so part of my uh, coaching philosophy is about is about people. It's about helping people. It's about making them better human beings and not just seeing um, uh, the outcome as the only thing that they're striving for. Mm. Uh, it's more than that. 
and I think myself and and sport and high performance sport have a responsibility to to do just that. So, yeah, in a nutshell, it's about making people see things and go on a journey and look back and go, wow, what a journey that was. Mm. And and actually, they've achieved dreams. And I know that sounds quite uh, cliche or quite fluffy, um, but it is exactly what I'm in the high performance world for. Amazing. Andy, same question. Not to be famous for anything. What we would like to do, the people that are in, for example, the Journey Through Conflict team, is to inspire journeys to a better life through all the impact that we can have on the people that take part in what we do and Mm. the people who come and watch and listen to our creative endeavours. And that's about the best we can do is to help people live a better life and get through some difficult things, whatever the scenario, mm. wherever in the world. Wow. So um, we're not uh, just messing around here today. Um, so w- when you say that, when have you been closest to that feeling, Greg? When have you been closest to that kind of sense that y- you are living that thing that you ultimately want to aspire towards? I think twofold, really. I see it, uh, to be honest, I see it every day in training. Mm-hmm. Um athletes that have come through our, uh, our doors and use the sport as a vehicle to become a better human being and to actually have a, a chance to be a full-time athlete. You know, I, so that for me is, is day-to-day and that never gets um, complacent or it doesn't get boring because you are seeing what you wanted to do and wanting to become every single day through the, the athletes living their lives and actually training. And then the the other side to that is actually when you go to the biggest event of an athlete's life um, for us, Paralympic Games, um, and that was Rio 2016 when we achieved um, history-breaking results. Um, we won two golds and, and one bronze, and the bronze medal we won, why it was so significant for us, because we beat China, who mm. are the, you know, it's their number one sport, and they're the most powerful country in, in terms of table tennis in the world. Uh, but seeing the two guys win the gold medal was unbelievably emotional for the whole team, not just the individual or the coaches, actually the whole team, because the two guys that won gold have been on this journey with us for the last 15 years. Um, I've been involved in high performance coaching for 15 years. And when I took this role with uh, Power Tables, I knew it wasn't going to be a short-term quick fix. Mm. It was actually, this. I'm in this for the long run, because to make a difference here, you could see the opportunities, but to make a difference, you're talking over two, three Paralympic Games. Um, And then to see that come to fruition through a gold medal as the outcome um, was emotional for me and you've got people that um, throughout their journeys have been told that they'll never achieve anything you know we had an athlete that changed classification from a class 6 athlete uh, to a class 7 athlete there was a protest from another country he got moved up a classification which makes it tougher um, with his disability to and, and there was people coming up to him saying you'll never achieve you'll never win a gold medal with your disability in that classification and he's overcome all the odds he's been resilient he's coach with it which is what for me what it takes to win mm-hmm. um and he's won a gold medal at the end of it and at the same time the other guy that won a gold medal um broke his neck in a in a rugby scrum um in 2004 i think it was uh, and it's took him 10 years 
one to not only accept and overcome that he's disabled, but also he was, you know, a semi-professional rugby player. He's used that uh, as motivation to still exceed, still be world class in the sport that he's chosen to do, and he's chosen table tennis. And to see that and see the emotion come out mm. um, when they win that gold medal is is what I coach for. But also to see the rest of the teammates collectively also know how much that means to them because they've been on that journey with them. It's yeah. not just the individual, it's the teammates that they've helped train with because obviously we're in a sport where you have to train with each other. You can't just train on your own. So everyone's part of the jigsaw as well yeah. as the coaches, as well as the sports science stuff. So see all that come together at Paralympic Games of what you've got out of bed for every single day is... Um, it's just fantastic and you want to do it over and over again and that's why I'm still in the role. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about para- Paralympic cycles, it's four years. I mean, it's it's not just a, a week-by-week thing that you're talking about there. It's it's a, yeah. it's a significant chunk of time. And Andy, w- what about you? When have you been closest to that um, moment of thinking, yeah, this, this is why I'm here? Particularly when... I was the last commanding general of coalition forces in southeast Iraq between 2008 and 2009, which um, was a moment when everything that you'd learned from the moment you joined, which in my case was back in 1977, all the different levels, all the different learning that you've taken from outside of the military in lots of different fields, research, coaching, sport, Mm-hmm. music, performance, and then working out a framework of how you wanted to tackle something. Get everybody bought into that framework, all the team that were involved in the planning of the campaign, and then work with them to completely transform the scenario, which was quite violent, to one where it was stable. Mm-hmm. Um, having achieved all of our objectives, but in close partnership with Iraqis of all different kinds of persuasions. That was the most satisfying thing that I've ever, ever had the privilege of being able to do with lots of other people. Mm, that, that sounds fascinating to to be able to just explore that, if we may. There you were talking about the incredible ability for for humans to transform from one state to another. You're talking about an athlete transforming from a state, you know, you used the example of the um, semi-professional rugby player, Mm -hmm. breaking his neck and and taking 10 years to come to terms with that and then going on to succeed in a different sport. And you're talking about a whole city or a whole area transforming from from violence to stability. What was it that that you saw that created that impact? How, you know, what were the things that you you were able to do, your team was able to do to influence that transformation from one to the other? Well, we had to be very clear on what our purpose was, and our purpose was basically to help Iraqis build a better Iraq for themselves. Then through a period of thought and reflection and planning and reconnaissance, meeting lots of different types of people and realising that actually the future is about optimism. So helping shape, build, create and protect the optimism of the people in Basra, its citizens, Mm -hmm. to buy into the fact that the future is going to be a better place than where they were before and it was worth investing in. And then 
with the whole force and all of our stakeholders. So that's not just the military force that I was actually in command of, but the politicians, the people involved in reconstruction development, the people in the city, civil society, all of these different stakeholders, to get them to co-create a picture of what the future might look like together. Mm. And then look through the lens of the people, put the people at the heart of everything that we were doing. And the whole of the campaign was really about doing that, look through the lens of the people to influence, support and influence everybody to build an optimistic future. Mm, wow. And and so that sounds like the what we talk about, get the clarity of what it is that you're looking to achieve, create some belief around why you want to do it, the purpose, you know, that kind of sense, create that sense of ownership. And then crucially, it's about the commitment to actually deliver against it through the highs, the lows, through the barriers and the challenges. How were you able to gain that commitment? Once you'd got that clarity, once you've created that sense of belief that you know, the optimism was going to be there. Well, the first thing is with the people that you're involved closely with in your own team. So there were 50 of us for about four months planning this thing. And we co-created that plan together. Mm. And everybody in that team had a role, had a lot of freedom to be able to explore, go on their own trips to meet lots of different types of people, for example, the person who was in charge of reconstruction and development, he would reach out to all of the different agencies in theatre and back in the UK and in the States and work out what the art of the possible was and who the key people were who we needed to build great relationships with. That, that 50 people built the plan and there were two things that were really important at the end of the planning period. One was to actually have a plan mm -hmm. Yeah. So we devise a fairly simple campaign plan with steps and what we used to call ellipses of operations. So, for example, there were three, security, uh, economics and social development, and politics and governance. So in those three areas, we all worked out what we needed to achieve. Having negotiated, brokered, socialised that plan with everybody that we could at home and abroad and in theatre, and then create an intention around that plan. So two fundamental things were create the right intention. And that intention statement was basically about this is what we want to achieve. This is the end state. Mm -hmm. These are the key things that are going to be decisive that we need to, to win mm -hmm. and deliver. And this is how we're going to do it. Mm. And that intention is a very simple written document on one side of paper that a 10-year-old could understand. Mm. And what's really important is to make sure that absolutely everybody um, in your force and the people that you're with can understand what is being written. If it's too complicated, people don't understand it, it'll never get executed. Mm. And we used to have a marine test, so I used to get my chef or my driver to actually read all the stuff I was writing and ask him for feedback and say, does that make sense to you? No, it's too complicated, it's too flowery, write it again. <laughs> okay, in words that I can understand and then the soldiers will be able and the servicemen and women will be able to execute it. Mm. So that intention, so you've got two documents, you've got an intention and you've got a plan. 
And the intention is what you use to communicate to everybody, to connect with all your stakeholders. And then the process of alignment starts once people start to get that intention. Mm. And the buy-in comes from actually people living that intention and living the journey through the plan. And so your job as a senior leader is to enable and help everybody to be able to do that and deliver it. And then you've got a whole system in place, like any great campaign of review and learning as you're going along, adjusting, adapting through the ups and downs, changing bits because it's never going to work. Then you get some successes that you can, you know, really um, open open up and suddenly things change. You didn't realize opportunities that come your way. And to do it with a positive spirit the whole time. Wow. There you go. Hope somebody captured that one because that, that is, um, that's incredible. That's almost like a master class in itself. And, and Greg, when you're listening to that, mm. what's your reflections in terms of your campaign? You know, that your four years of um, ambition and, and hope and optimism that, that Andy was talking about there. Well, first of all, it's, there's so many similarities when Andy's talking and it's, you know, I resonate with every single word and every single story there that he's sharing because... I think what we're ultimately talking about is leading change and, and leading a culture. Um, and Paralympic Tables, we did exactly that. And again, from what I said before, we knew it was going to be around a 15-year journey. Um, and what we ultimately did, uh, and I say we, this is me, myself, the, the performance director, um, is come in and make sure everyone believed that they were responsible to the performance. And it isn't one person or it isn't a couple of people. It's actually everyone has a leadership responsibility within the team, whether that you are the operations manager, whether you're the physiotherapist, whether you're the psychologist. Because what we felt was happening that if we didn't apply that initiative, a physio would say, well, they're all fit and ready, so it's not my problem. Mm. A psychologist would say, well, when I spoke to them, their their head was in a good place, so it's it's not my problem. I'm talking about if if athletes were failing, etc. But actually, if I've got a problem as head coach, everyone's got a problem. Or if an athlete's got a problem, we're all responsible to try and help that athlete achieve. And the, the more we could see it as a collective journey together the more transformation we could have in our, in our, in our wins. And what we also did <clears throat> is stop talking about medals. We get bombarded with medals being the, the sole purpose of why we're on this planet. But if we only focus on the outcome, for us, it actually increased stress, increased anxiety. Um, and we sort of prevented anyone talking about medals because we know, you know, it, you know, it wasn't the elephant in the room because we know that we're in this business to win medals. Yeah. So we don't need to remind ourselves all the time, every day, that if you have a bad training session or if you had a bad performance, you're not going to win a medal next time the Paralympic comes around. You know, it's bigger than that. So we started to focus solely on the process. And it was all about what we needed to do together and what, where are the little sort of margins that we could use to actually improve the athlete to be the best they could possibly be. But it was all process-driven rather than outcome-driven. And of course, when you are process-driven, you need some good outcomes along the way to know that it's working, yep. to know that the journey's going in the right direction. And of course, if the outcomes along the way aren't going the way that you feel needs to be, then you might need to go back and change something. But when we changed the process... It completely changed the complexity of how the athletes spoke to us, how they, they, we saw the athletes as human beings and the athletes saw us as, as human beings as well, rather than mm. athletes see coach as coach 
it was actually, we're in this together, so let's not be two separate teams. Let's be one team. Let's come together and work together. And if we've got a problem, let's work it out together. Um, so that's where there was a, a big transformation. Uh, and now going forwards, it's all about how we as a staff team work together uh, and how we open up ourselves and be vulnerable. I think there's a lot of leadership out there where we're afraid to be vulnerable. Mm. But actually, for me, being vulnerable is the key to, to success uh, and to winning and to open up your uh, your doubts, your anxieties, because then we can do something about it. But if you keep it in, um, it's difficult for us to make that change. So ultimately, this is culture. And our culture has changed from what it was in the lead up to Beijing to what it was in the lead up to London to what it was in the lead up to Rio, because culture is constantly changing. And if we don't adapt culture and we keep culture the same, then for sure we're all going to get complacent. Mm. Um, so ultimately, it's about making sure that you have the right culture at the right time and you see the future where that culture needs to go. Yeah. Andy, you spoke a lot about optimism being absolutely integral as part of that. And Greg was just talking there about um, being vulnerable uh, and the importance of being able to express fears and anxieties and that kind of thing. How how do you balance that? How do you balance the the optimism of this is where we're going in a bright new future, and yet I'm scared, I'm anxious, or you know that that kind of what could be perceived as negativity? How do you get that balance? Well, I think optimism is not necessarily looking through rose tinted specs and saying the future is fantastic and you know, let's just ignore all of that crap that we're seeing over there and the negative vibes, man. Yeah. That's not what it's all about. Optimism is really about positively embracing and moving towards a better place and believing that that is entirely possible with within any situation that you find yourself in, whatever sector, whatever context, sport, disaster relief politics mm. or whatever and I feel that if you don't have optimism you might as well have a cynicism and actually there's plenty of that about and it doesn't get us anywhere mm. so you have to balance that out with reality and the ground truth of what is actually happening no bullshit mm. no point disguising things that are problems that need sorting. So it's it's actually being frank and open, honest and constructively helpful and mindfully helpful in looking at the things that need to be sorted out and the feedback that you're giving and the coaching that goes on all of the time. Positive critique. So it's a combination of realism and optimism mm. with truth and facts that speak for themselves. And then, of course... There is marketing, communicating, shaping and influencing the environment through how you communicate what you're seeing. We used to have a phrase, for example, which was deliver, see, tell. Get things delivered and help people deliver stuff. So like one area of the city happens to be working because there's a great school teacher who's inspiring people to come together in a, a way and build a better future in that district. Let people see that. Because in a city, you might have wonderful things happening in one street, but there's a barrier between another street and people can't see what's happening. So people have got to be able to flow and see that. So you mm. have to enable that. And then you've got to tell the world about it. Because how are people going to know that things are great? They're looking up. Mm. Because that's spreading the optimism 
constructively based on facts that have actually happened, yeah. not policies and promises that never get delivered, which is actually what happens with politics most of the time. Mm. So it's deliver, see, tell. And that is so powerful because success breeds success. People actually start thinking, actually, it's not bad after all. And we used to have people coming from the top of the country down to the bottom of the country, having seen our marketing campaigns in Arabic, written by Iraqis, um, fantastic campaign. Politicians would come down and say, oh, we hear Basra's a lot better these days. You know, this is happening. This is, oh, it was great. Well, wow, we had no idea. Well done. It must be better. <laughs> yeah. How much resource would you like to be able to go and do that? We'll go and speak to those people over there. Yeah. So it's it's infectious wow. if it's played right. But it has to be tempered with realism. Yeah. So I, as I hear that, you know, deliver, see, tell, how often do we hear it completely the opposite way around? Tell, oh, this is what we're going to do. I promise, 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 like over-promising. And then kind of trying to point to one little glimmer of hope amongst a, a sea of kind of evidence that tells you that it's not true. Um, and I then think perhaps some of, deliver, hope for delivery. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is maybe something that you see, Greg, as well, but sometimes in the best teams, not much is said because actually words are wasteful and more words are hot air, which actually get nobody and just suck up the oxygen. You know, let's put our energy into delivering stuff. So that means we need to be really clear on what we're delivering. So let's put our energy into getting clarity by understanding the situation we find ourselves in and working hard to deliver that with everybody and making sure everybody knows what those objectives and those goals are so we're all aligning and get on. And then feeding back, coming back together. Mm. Great teams, especially in crisis, they don't say much. Mm. There's not actually much emotion. You know, you're well drilled, you're getting on with it and you're delivering stuff. Um, bullshit baffles brains and gets nobody anywhere, it irritates the hell out of people. Yeah. So... You don't need to say much. Yeah. Uh, Totally. But it sounds like this whole point here, optimism and vulnerability was that question there. Yeah, which I completely missed. No, you didn't. (laughs) You didn't. And that's what the ultimate vulnerability is being in the reality in a way that it's constructive and optimistic. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when things are going wrong, that's the ultimate vulnerability. But ultimately, it's just an opportunity to change shape, change track, take on something new, communicate the message. and I think when you said being scared and vulnerable, I mean, that's fine. That goes with the territory. You know, we're pushing against the margins. We're exposing ourselves to risk, life and death, or vulnerable psychological breakdown. If somebody criticises you're a handicapped athlete, you've done something, and actually it can be shell-shattering, can't it? Mm-hmm. Um and I think there has to be room in empathetic organisations where we can deal with the vulnerabilities and the people who feel scared. That is fine. And deal with them and know how to deal with them, all these different scenarios. Great teams, great leaders, great people will accommodate all of that. Um, deal with it. Not necessarily have to dwell on it all the time, especially if you've actually got to go and do something, yeah. which is pretty crunchy. Yeah, You know, there's a time for... You know, standing back and having a sad reflection about something. And there's another time for actually, that's the mission, guys and girls. Let's get on and deliver it right now. Move. Mm. How would you, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just struck by, you know, as I look around the room here, we've got 
just incredible individuals who have been part of incredible teams uh, and uh, a kind of a naysayer might say well it was easy for you guys you had the very best you had the best people uh, in the uh, in the world you know best army well drilled professional soldiers you know it's easy for you guys you know you guys have got Olympic champions of course you're going to kind of experience that of course you're going to have all these skills where do you start? Like, you know, if you do not have, if you're not in this incredible high performance environment, where do you begin? Mm. Well, I think you start with a vision um, because my, you know, my comeback to those people that would say that is we started on the the, the bottom of the the floor, if you like. We were the laughing stocks of, of para table tennis internationally, actually. I remember going to uh, Beijing 2008 and wanting the ground to swallow me up. We we went there underprepared, um, didn't have that great vulnerability team that we just talked about, um, and ended up the furthest an athlete got was the last 16, so a couple of rounds after the prelims. Um, we had the British team around us winning you know, medals left, right and centre, so the feeling of coming back to the village every day was, um, was quite frankly horrendous um but that in itself was the starting point of success for us so we never started with success we started with big big failure mm. um but so individually as a coach that helped me get even more motivated to the mistakes that i had made in the beijing cycle and what i needed to do along with other people to transform this this team we had we were quite lucky and fortunate thanks to the, the lottery in uk sport that with the London Games, we carried on getting funded. They saw something in us. We saw some talent coming through. But then we had to totally change. And we used that failure as a, you know, for me, failure also breeds success if it's done in the right way. If you have that resilience to keep going, to keep dusting yourself down, to keep um, in sight of the vision that you set with the team. And that's where we started. And some of our um, challenges have now been actually when we've been successful, how do we stay successful? Mm. So... You know, in terms of when you've got uh, Olympic or Paralympic champions and medalists, it actually becomes harder, not easier in, in my world uh, to maintain that high support, high challenge environment, to want athletes to go again, mm. to live their day every day of, of working hard and being disciplined and wanting to be the best in the world. And, you know, you might have athletes that, you know, get asked to go on uh, quizzes, game shows, etc. So mm. you've got the media now that you have to manage. You've got all this, you know, so success brings all these different voices and different noise. So it actually becomes harder. When we first started, it was all about being in the hall, being drilled, training hard, and that will make a difference. Now it's a lot more than that. And, and the role as a, as, a, as a head coach or a performance team is to manage the athletes and their life and the impacts that different noises have or different outside sources have to still get them to perform. So, you know, even when you're successful, for me, it's 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 even harder to continue to be successful. That's the challenges we've had. But it's quite um, why I love high performance sport is because one day is never the same, and that again is why I'm in the business. It, it's never the same. Um, you you change things daily. You change things monthly. But that's what motivates everyone to carry on doing what they they want to do. Mm. What was the the last um, kind of we call it a light bulb moment, but that kind of realization uh, moment that that you've had that that has changed or altered um, how you think? Well, it is related partly to your last question. 
what happens when you haven't got lots of great people around you that aren't trained, uh, people are scared in a disaster zone or a situation or dysfunctional teams. By the way, you can have really well-trained people in a dysfunctional team. So what I've learned in particular in the work that I've done since leaving with senior leaders and teams in lots of different sectors is to look at a situation, listen and understand the best you, way you can and find one thing that actually might be going well or find one gem or one positive thing that you can build on. Normally, in any situation, there's always one thing that seems okay or might be working despite all the other things that are happening around. So if you can find that one thing and build on it, um, then that's where you start. Mm. I coached rugby to kids between the ages of 16 and 13, one stage. Um, and we got taught on our level one rugby coaching course about game sense coaching, which is basically to watch people doing something. And then whatever you see, you've got the immediate work on from what's happening. And you go outside the environment and you build zones where you work on each of those activities, try and see some improvement, then you go back to playing again. Mm. It's that sort of approach, um, which is quite improvised as well. But that's, that's what I've learned seems to work best mm. and to focus on one thing at a time. How, how do you balance that? Um, it's the question that I often get as a, as a coach within um, big, you know, global organizations. Uh, the, the kind of the retort is often, well, you had four years to prepare for one moment. We've got a moment every day and probably several moments every day that we have to perform. So it's completely the opposite way around. We might practice once in four years uh, whereas they are just performing and there's that constant sense of we need to hit the quarter numbers, we need to hit the half-year numbers, et cetera, et cetera. How, how do you, you know, get that balance? And, and you, know, you guys have completely diverse experiences in that. How do you prepare? How do you take advantage of that kind of ability to get ready for the performance? What is it that you're able to do to, to ensure that you are able to perform when it matters? I think it's all down to that one moment and I think that in itself brings um, a lot of work on how are you going to prepare for that moment and what we do is a lot of resilience and coping strategies for that moment. So in the four years we will play around with what we think each individual needs when they get to a Paralympic Games um, and it isn't necessarily to be the best uh, technically and tactically prepared athlete. And we found that in Rio. So a lot of our uh, work goes on to how to deliver in the moment when expectation is the highest it can possibly be, um, when it does feel different. You know, we prepare for it to feel different. It, it, you know, a World Championships feels totally different to a Paralympic Games. Europeans feels totally different. Um, and we try and throughout, and now we're doing a Tokyo Ready uh, program, we prepare for that. And again, our two gold medalists from Rio, um, they... They would sit here today and tell and tell us that they didn't perform to their best level in terms of technically and tactically. They were quite way off it actually. 
But what they did better than any other team or any other athlete is actually cope with that situation better than anyone. And just before when we were sitting outside, we uh, promote to our athletes to stay in the eye of the storm. So if we see the Paralympic Games as when we get there in the lead up to the first matches, wouldn't it be great if we could be in the eye of that storm and see the other countries around us moving fast-paced, uh, panicking, uh, trying to be in two places at once. Um, and we took a lot of confidence and pride when we did see that. And so even if our guys were not technically at their best, they could still cope through matches, they could still have the right mindset to win matches and basically win when they're not feeling at their, their best. And that is what we promote throughout the four years because we know throughout the four years there are massive ups and downs. There are times when athletes, um, they can't miss a ball and they're actually playing to the, the, their best level, but we know that that isn't necessarily going to be the case at the Paralympic Games because you will feel different. Mm. Instead of getting them to try and feel the same, we actually promote you will feel different but how can we still perform when we're feeling in that way yeah uh, and that for us has helped and and for us it's like we've it's okay to feel different it's okay to feel anxious um rather than try and fight it so we did a lot of work with mindfulness as a, as a coaching team but also with the athletes uh, and we use mindfulness and breathing techniques to still, even when we're feeling anxious, that we don't run away from it. Mm. And we can still make effective decisions under pressure when we're feeling under stress. Mm. Uh, and we've used that significantly as part of our coach development, uh, but also um, our work with the athletes and our terminology from coach to athlete is the same for, with psych to athlete. So basically, it's psychologist goes through the coaches, that the coaches go through the athlete, rather than it being silos. Right. It's all one team. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, it's about coping and resilience. Yeah. And we use that as our, our way to win. Yeah. Certainly, w one of my reflections through the, the three Olympics that I competed at, it was I was expecting Olympics number one to suddenly go there, and I was expecting to deliver a superhuman mm -hmm. performance bigger, better, faster, quicker than I'd ever been before. And I was expecting to do that. Guess what? I didn't. Um, and so by the time I went to the third Olympics, it was actually how close can, to my potential can I get? And that then became the aim. And it was so exciting because that was the closest I ever got. Certainly the closest I ever felt getting to my uh, potential. And that all of a sudden took the pressure off that I didn't have to do something like superhuman. Um, Funnily enough, when I touch the wall and I reflect back now, it certainly seems superhuman now. Even getting in a pair of Speedos seems superhuman for me right now. But anyway, moving on quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, for you, Andy, say, same, same question. Like, what is that preparation that you guys were able to do and, and still continue to do in order to be able to perform at that moment? And how can you um, get away from that fact that it's not just one moment. You know, there's a series of performances that you have to deliver. Regardless of the environment, you still have to deliver that. Well, one part of the question was, you know, you see a lot of busy people and they're always in the moment and they've got, you know, quarterly targets, et cetera, to fulfill. Um, both in the, sa the same approach in the military as in business. Although, obviously, if you're the, the boss in the military and people tend to stop and answer your questions. But it's to try and get people to stand back and just take a few moments to consider exactly what they're trying to achieve, what the purpose of their endeavour is, and to stand back and say, all right, depending on the answers to that, 
Mm. You might want to stop everything and realign. Or depending on the answers to that, you might want to just say, okay, based on those things collectively, what are the couple of simple things that we can do to improve? So that is the same principle as the last question, answering the last question, um, which is you've always got to be clear about where you're going to and what you're trying to achieve, the purpose of your activity, what you've just done, what you're learning from that, and what are you insights are you taking forward to apply to what you're doing now. And what we get taught in basic training is that every single activity, every single day, through debriefs, through constructive debriefing. Mm. And <laughs> when you're a young officer going through training, you've just done something, you're hanging out, or you've just given a set of orders, or you've just led an attack or something, or been on a patrol, or stood up and given a presentation. The instructor will always say, how did that go? Um, what did you do that went really well? And what could you do that's going to go better, and what would you do next time? That's drilled into you. Mm. That's exactly the same principle as the stuff that I take into business and mm. good businesses do that anyway and good teams do that anyway yeah and and in the the you know to, to use your terminology the heat of battle or you know that, that that kind of real high pressure moment what is it that you guys do to ensure that that is an option that standing back and, and observing does become an option because so often when you're you're in that moment there's that whole tunnel vision you're delivering what you want to do you know that doesn't even come in as an option for some people well if you're in the middle of a battle a firefight and stuff like that you are just in pure delivery mode you're executing the job with everything that you've learned um, the mission has all been clarified hopefully you might find yourself in situations where you're not really clear what you've got to do and you just got to fight your way out of it so you fight your way out of it, you do what you need to do to get out of that situation. That's the immediate priority. It's like somebody's had an accident, what's the immediate priority to save life? You go into, you know, the first aid drill. So that's an immediate action to sort that issue out. If uh, Marine's rifle jams, he goes in, it, uh, rifle jams, he goes into an immediate action to clear the stoppage and carries on. So he absolutely taught how to do that. Mm. But just like you know, twenty minutes before the end of the second of the of the second half in a rugby match, the skill in people who win and can outmaneuver opponents and be smart in the moment, somehow there's that extra sense that people can either naturally have um, because they just see things in a cooler way and they're, they're head up naturally and they always have been and they've got great situation awareness and they can see what needs to be done. So in, in the, the military, when you're in that scenario, you've just got to try and find those moments. It might be the end of the phase one, you've just delivered the first phase of fighting to an objective, you stop. And actually, the leader has to assess what's going on. He has to take intelligence and information from everybody else around him, often through the radio or, you know, whatever 
intelligence surveillance target acquisition assets are out there, like drones or whatever. And he's assessing, okay, we've got here, right? You know, I've lost a few guys, or we're in a right state, we're out of food, it's taken a lot longer, the opposition are doing this, what do we think? And make an assessment. And actually in the military, you get taught how to take, make assessments, combat assessments. Mm. Yes, there's a drill you go through. Yeah. <laughs> and it actually really helps when you're under pressure to think of simple drills. Yeah, yeah. Right? As I said earlier, when we were having a coffee, you know, when you come under fire, dash down, crawl, sights, observe, fire. You never forget that. Okay. <laughs> All right. It stays with you for the yeah. rest of your life. Yeah, I'll bet. Because you've practiced and practiced and yeah. practiced and drilled it all of that time so you can react coolly under pressure. But the thing is, it's about mindful awareness of whatever situation you're in. And that's why even sometimes when you're under cool, calm, under pressure, those people who can do that are priceless because they're the ones who make the difference, save lives or win the moment. Um, so. There's a preparedness though, that you are trained, coached. You, you have the tools at your disposal to be able to cope with those situations. So, you know, you, you can go to your own playbook and go, okay, here we go. These are the things we go through. So you don't have to think under pressure about random situation scenarios it's going through a checklist almost it sounds like yeah and i remember when i was a troop commander took over my troop and we were doing a phase um in one of our exercises where we were just doing a lot of troop attacks and in training i'd think i'd done one troop attack <laughs> right when you know you got your command appointment and you had one go at it and some senior Joe was walking behind you, looking at you, making a complete arse of yourself. And you think, if I have to do this for real, I'm going to be crap. Everybody's going to get killed. But when I got my troop, you know, we sat down and worked out how we were going to do things. And we sort of drew it out on a model and, you know, moved little soldiers around and, you know, walked the ground and did it without, um, you know, being under pressure, talked everybody through and said, well, when you're doing that, I'm doing that. What are you doing over there? Right, so when I go and move over there that group what are you doing oh you're moving over there and when you get over there you're going to tell me that you've got you know that sort of stuff and we just walked and talked it through and then we increased the tempo and the pressure and actually by the time we did it we didn't actually really need to look at our delayed memoirs and what to do it'd been drilled into mm. us and the team was really brilliant wow. and you felt crikey i'm quite confident to be able to do this in a difficult situation wow unbelievably <laughs> We have reached or are very near to the end. I of knew our this would go well. Did time, but we just started. But, um, <laughs> but what I've got is a final question, um, and it's to both of you. As a result of this conversation, um, Greg, what has kind of come to the top of your mind? Whether it's something you've learned. Uh, before or it's a brand new thing what are you going to do as a result of uh, this conversation that you perhaps might not have done well i think uh, first of all to continue being resilient um and resilient under pressure so when things don't necessarily go to plan how you as a as a coach and a support team act uh, because how you act will influence the way that the athletes perform mm. um to always have a, a purpose and a vision whether that's day to day or where you're going in five years, 10 years time to make sure yourself individually stays motivated, your team stays motivated, the athletes are motivated 
Uh, and thirdly, to make sure that you combine individual uh, goal setting with collective goal setting. Um, and, and if you combine those two things together, then you have a real strong sense of, of team. Because again, in our team, um, we have 17 athletes on the performance programme. Everyone has got a totally different journey of how they're going to get to the top. No one way is the same. You know, how the gold medalist in Rio compared to the other gold medalist, totally different journey, totally different training, totally different goal setting. Um, sometimes it's like going to a different sport when you go from one athlete to the other, which makes you as a coach have to adapt and be flexible in your approach. So you've got to really make sure you don't have a, a, a general programme. It's probably the beauty of working in Paralympic sport because if you have a general programme that everyone follows, maybe one or two will mm. come through, but not, not everyone. Yeah. So you really have to adapt. So not, there's a collectiveness of everyone's in this for the same reasons. And if there's a problem, it's everyone's problem. But really honing down on what an individual needs um, to make them achieve for the future. Yeah. For me and others, it's about helping people find the one moment, the one thing that they're really going to enjoy and have fun about that makes life worthwhile and helps everybody get to their destination. And we have reached ours. Uh, so that has been an, a truly wonderful uh, conversation. Uh, I hope you guys have uh, at home have uh, taken as much as, as we have as I've kind of sat here open mouthed listening to these um, incredible stories. Scott, what have you heard? What have you taken? I've had so many insights from today. And I, I used to say to people when they talked to me about sport, and as I used to say, that we really don't do a real job in sport. We're in, we're in the entertainment industry. Um, whereas with the insights that we've had from Andy, you know, we, we don't save lives and we don't fight wars. Um, but it's fascinating to see the parallels in the approach that is taken from a Paralympic sport to the military where purpose, uh, in you, your intention, you know, creating the intent around purpose and what we're trying to achieve, what are the important things and how are we going to go about it in a really simple way uh, is the starting point for, for so many great endeavours, whether it's entertaining people in a great sport that means so, many, so much to people's lives through to fighting a war and saving countries. Um, so for me... The biggest one is really about that that starting point. And then, as you mentioned, then finding the small things that are simple now, the one thing that we can be optimistic and build upon from there. So we're going to finish it up there. Thank you so much for listening to a, another episode of What Does It Take to Win? Hopefully you've had some wonderful insight uh, from Greg and Andy. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you as well. And we're literally out of time. <laughs>